It is a blessing to be here, to be sharing the word of God. God is in this place. God is where two or three are gathered in his name. God has prepared marching orders for us today, and his marching orders are found in his word. Of his word, we are told by Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow, and soul and spirit, and this word is a discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We need to pray now so that God can speak to us through his word. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gift of life. Now that we have gathered us in different places, may you fill us with your Holy Spirit power and speak to us through your word. After you have spoken to us, Lord, we pray, may you teach us, Father, to practice what we preach, to live what we sing about, and to pursue what we pray for. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our word that we are sharing today is coming from the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 18. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Some people have taken it as a memory verse. I will read it to you in the King James Version. It says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So, when you read it in the Old English, it says, uh, My little children, let us not, not love in word, neither in tongue. So some may ask a question, what's tongue? The Aramaic Bible in plain English then says, Children, let us not love one another with words or with speech, but in deeds and in truth. Uh, there is an old English saying, I'm sure most of us we have heard it, and the saying says, actions speak louder than words. And it is because of this statement, also in line with the text that we have read today, First John chapter 3, verse 18, my Children, let us not love one another with words and with speech, but in deeds and in truth. I wish to give a title to our message today, Talk is Cheap. Talk is Cheap. It's a statement that many of us often throw around because some say, show me the money. What you are talking about, show me how practical it is. It's just like a parent who tells their child not to smoke and then they light up a cigarette. It is unlikely that that parent will convince that child to stop smoking. So the child will simply say, show me the money, because talk is cheap. Or you can see someone driving a car with a bumper sticker that says, what would Jesus do? And then the very same person with such a bumper sticker cuts off others in a line of traffic. So it is easy to say something it is one thing to say something, and it is another, to practice what we preach. Uh, most of the times, we are people who contradict ourselves. The things that we profess to believe, the things that we profess to live by, we fail to do it in practical. In communication, you discover, they say communication is 7% seven actual words, 35% is determined by the tone of our voice, and listen to this, 58% our actions. So if communication is 58% our actions and 7% our words, then it means that we need to pay much attention to the things that we do. We need to be a people who practice what we preach. It's interesting that we as a people, we profess a lot of things, but our walk after the talk is totally different. 
That's why you'll find that there is a famous Jewish proverb that says, don't be wise in words, but be wise in deeds. Meaning that you need to put too much emphasis on the things that you do and the things that you practice more than the things that you say. So I wish to share with you a message today entitled, Talk is Cheap. First John chapter 3, verse 18, uh, written by the beloved Apostle John, he then summarizes it and says, Children, let us not love one another with words and with speech, but in deeds and in truth. I wish to summarize our talk today only by using three key points, three lessons that we can learn from what John is telling us. And when you read 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says in the King James Version, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let me read it to you in the NIV, the New International Version. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. It says here, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. So how do we know that Jesus loves us? Because since talk is cheap, he did the deed. He did the practical. Lesson number one says, show me by copying. Show me by copying. You know, there's a book written in 1896 by a man called Charles Sheldon. The book is entitled, In His Steps. In His Steps. So this book was later uh, written, rewritten under a different title. The title was What Would Jesus Do? And it was written by Sheldon's great-grandson. Children of God, when we need to show people what we believe, what we stand for, or as some people say, evangelizing, not evangelizing, 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 living the things that we are evangelizing, we need to ask ourselves a question, what would Jesus do? if you were found in certain situations. That's why the first lesson says, show me by copying. What would Jesus do if he came across someone who is in need? What would Jesus do? If there was someone who is in need and Jesus comes across that person, what would he do? We have a very perfect example. At one point in time, when Jesus was teaching and preaching, there were many people who came to him and he was healing those people supplying to their needs, to the physical and the spiritual needs of the people. But then after spending that day of teaching, preaching, and even healing, the people spent the whole day with him. And then his disciples came to him and they said, we need to send these people away. What would Jesus do if there was someone in need? So what did Jesus do? Jesus then said, where can we find food for them? Until to cut the long story short, Jesus managed to feed 5,000 men, counting men only without women and children. So Jesus fed thousands of people, supplying the needs of thousands of people when he saw that they were in need. So show me by copying. Can't you copy what Jesus does? Can't you copy what Jesus did? If there's someone who is in need, can you supply the need? Secondly, you can even ask the question, what would Jesus do about forgiving those who had wronged him in one way or the other? I've seen some people who even uh, brag and boast about their anger. 
Christians even, they will say, you know I'm a Christian, eh? If you try to push me again, you will see me. You will see and you will know the real me. Eh? Sometimes they will even move their head, bob their head, to try and show you that they can even take you to limits that you, you can never imagine. Christians are known to do that. Christians are known to be people who hold grudges. But the question is, what will Jesus do? What will Jesus do about forgiving those who had wronged him in one way or the other? You know, when you find an incident that is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter asked the question, how many times should I forgive a person? And some of us, we know the answer, 70 times 7, 490. But Jesus, what he was trying to explain was don't calculate, don't count, don't come to a threshold, just keep on forgiving. But some of us, we have a threshold. Some of us, we count a particular threshold for someone. And when that person is fulfilled and filled, gone past that threshold, then they are past forgiving. What will Jesus do? Talk is cheap, children of God. Talk is cheap. If we claim to be Christians, people don't want to hear that we are Christians. They want to see that we are Christians. That's why the first lesson is saying, show me by copying. By copying who? Jesus Christ. What will Jesus do when you see someone in need? What will Jesus do when there is someone who needs to be forgiven? You know, even when you uh, keep on reading the Bible, you are told that even the people who persecuted and crucified Jesus Christ, he prayed for them. He simply said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. So, if you want to show me your Christianity, talk is cheap. Don't tell me you belong to this denomination. Don't tell me, don't go around telling the world, introducing yourself to the world that you are a Christian. Show me by copying Jesus Christ. What would Jesus do to the people who lied and insulted him? You know, when you read Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Blessed are they, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You must count it all joy. And from the time that Jesus was slept in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the time he was given the crown of thorns, by the time he was lashed by those um, lashings, by the time he was finally nailed on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was insulted from every direction, but still he prayed for those people. So, talk is cheap, children of God. Christianity is something that is very interesting. It's not about saying it. It's about living it. That's why the encouragement today is evangelizing. Live the evangelism that you are teaching. So, show me by copying. The second lesson that I wish to pose to you uh, today from this message entitled, Talk is Cheap, is coming again from First John chapter 3, verse 18, which says, Children, let us not love one another with words and with speech, but in deeds and in truth. The second lesson then says, show me by doing. Show me by doing. When you read James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Be ye doers of the, world, of the word, not hearers. When you read James chapter 1, same chapter, verse 27, then it says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. What is pure religion? What is pure Christianity? What is real stuff Christianity? It is to visit the fatherless. 
and the widows in the affliction to keep himself unspotted from the world. So if a person claims to be a Christian, a person claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet does not do what Christianity teaches, is just all talk but no action. So most of the evangelism that we plan and that we plot, we fail to implement because the people that we revile the next day, we knock on their doors and want to give them a flyer for a crusade or a campaign that is happening at church. Sometimes we are the worst of neighbors. Our neighbors can't stand us. We are always shouting, insulting, and causing havoc in the neighborhood. Then the next day, the church then says, go with this bulletin, go and give it to your neighbors. How can we give it to them when we are failing to do the Christianity that we profess? St. Francis of Assisi is said one day to have invited an apprentice to go with him to a nearby village to preach a sermon. So this apprentice was told by the great St. Francis of Assisi, let's go to this nearby village uh, so that we can go and preach some sermons. So the young apprentice agreed, seized the opportunity, and accompanied St. Francis of Assisi. When they arrived at the village, the young man was expecting huge sermons. Eh? They arrived at the village, St. Francis of Assisi began visiting with people. First, he called in to see the butcher. So they went to the butcher, they had a lot of talks. He was talking with the butcher, uh, conversing here and there, here and there. When he was done, he went to the cobbler. Uh, not that he needed services, but he was just talking with the cobbler. And then they took a short walk home to a woman whose husband had recently died. And so the apprentice is just observing all this and he can't wait for the sermon. Then after a stop uh, at the school, they stopped there and then they chatted with the head teacher there. And then when it was done, the morning is done. Then St. Francis of Assisi says, we now need to return to the Abbey. So the student didn't understand this. So he says, but I thought you said we are coming here to preach. And we haven't even preached a single sermon. Then St. Francis of Assisi asked the apprentice, haven't we preached? People have watched us. People have listened to us. People have responded to us. Every word we have spoken, every deed we have done is a sermon. We have preached all morning. So the young man was thinking that the great St. Francis of Assisi was calling him so that they could go and preach in the village. But the sermon was a sermon in action. You know, this reminds me uh, of a statement that St. Francis of Assisi once said. He's the very same one who said, preach without ceasing. Eh? Preach the word without ceasing. And if it is possible, use words. What did you mean, St. Francis of Assisi? What do you mean? Preach the word where possible, use words. It means that rarely in preaching do we use words. Most in the bulk of the time, it is preaching in action. Lesson number one said, show me by copying Jesus Christ. Lesson number two then says, show me by doing what you have copied from Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a poem by Edgar Guest. Very wonderful poem. Edgar Guest says, I would rather see a, a stonemason than hear one any day. I would rather one would walk with me than merely show the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, 
but example is always clear. And the best of all, the stonemasons are the men who leave their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. The last uh, stanza of that poem, Edgar Guest says, I can soon learn how to do it if you will let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you in the high advice you give, but there is no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. God is speaking to us today through his word, and God is teaching us that talk is cheap. It is easy to say I'm a Christian. It is easy to say I'm a Bible-believing child of God. It is easy to say I'm a believer. It is easy to say I attended that particular congregation. But it is one thing to say that and another to leave what you are saying. Sometimes it is interesting, especially when you go to Christians, uh, Christian churches, and they tell you their tenets of beliefs. They tell you this is what we believe, these are our creeds, these are our fundamental beliefs. And it's very interesting that when you, when you go to an Adventist congregation, you, within a short time, get to understand and learn what are their fundamental beliefs, what are the tenets that they hold on to. You go to that church, you find that on a Sabbath school morning lesson study, almost everyone is like a theologian. As they contribute about the lesson quarterly, probably that they didn't read even. Because people are very good at coming up with conjectures, coming up with summations and formulations of beliefs, and yet, when it comes to practice, totally different issue. A certain lady who was homeless turned up on the pastor's doorstep for help. And when she turned up to the pastor's doorstep for help, the pastor then said, I will pray for you. This is a homeless lady. Yes, of course, we need to pray, but that can never be an excuse for inactivity when we are faced with injustice and need. So this very same lady then wrote a poem. She went to the pastor's doorstep for help, and he said, I'll pray for you. So she wrote a poem. She said, I was hungry, and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed off. Uh, you prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind, you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless. And you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry, lonely, and cold. Children of God, sometimes we don't need to be a people who always profess and do less. God is speaking to us, and especially in this time when we are going through a pandemic that we are fighting worldwide, the COVID-19, Christianity is called 
into practice. What have we done to those in need? People are in lockdown. People are in quarantine. Things have suddenly become so expensive. Then they ask those who have means. What are they doing to help those that have nothing? I know some churches were doing um, community service works of supplying groceries to those in need. And even sewing, the ladies of the churches sewing the masks and supplying to those that are in need. Christianity is being called into practice. People are not excited and interested about what you believe. They're interested about how you practice what you believe. So this pastor transformed himself into a homeless person, um, went to a 10,000-member church that he was going to be introduced as the head pastor that morning. But he dressed himself as a homeless person, a bum. He was looking like a bum. He was even pulling a trolley with things in it. So he walked around his soon-to-be church for 30 minutes while it was filling with people for service. And only from the 10,000 membership people, seven people, seven people only managed to attend to him. They said hello to him. Everyone else minded their own business, filed into church. A big mega church, 10,000 member church. He asked for change to buy food. No one gave him money. He went into the sanctuary to sit down in front of the church and he was asked by the ushers to go sit at the back. Please, sir, please sit at the back. We don't want you to cause commotion. He greeted people to be greeted back with stares, dirty looks, and people looking down on him. As he sat in the back of the church, he listened to the church announcements and everything that was happening. When everything was done, then the elders got up and they were excited to introduce the new pastor to this congregation. This new pastor was coming. Then they said, we would like to introduce you all to our new pastor. The congregation looked around, clapping with joy and anticipation. And then the homeless man who was sitting at the back stood up and he started walking down the aisle, coming to the front of the church. The clapping stopped. All eyes were on him. He walked up the altar, took the microphone from the elders. They were in on this, by the way. Took the microphone and then he paused for a moment. Then he recited from the Bible these words. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty? And give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invited you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. After he recited this, he looked towards the congregation and told them all what he had experienced that morning. Many began to cry and many heads were bowed down in shame. Then the pastor said, today I see a gathering of people, not a church of Jesus Christ. The world is enough people, but not enough disciples. When will you decide to become disciples? 
and then he dismissed the church for the next week's service. Children of God, do we need a local church pastor to disguise and come to the local church and do this exercise for us to practice true Christianity? That's what Jesus was talking about. Talk is cheap. Show me by copying Christ and show me by doing. Don't just say you believe and yet you don't practice what you preach. Following the footsteps of Jesus Christ should be more than just talk. It should be a lifestyle that others around you can love about and share. We need to finish now. The first lesson we said, show me by copying. The second one, show me by doing. You've copied Jesus Christ and now you're doing it. The third one, show me by showing. Show me by showing. When you read the Bible, First John uh, chapter 3, verse 18, then it says, Children, let us not love one another with words and with speech, but in deeds and in truth. I want the part of in truth. Christians normally want to first, first practice in truth before in deeds. Isn't it the famous statement that says Christ's method alone? It is the only way that can win people to him. Because Christ mingled with people as if someone who saw their good, supplied their need, and then finally he said, follow me. But we want to say follow me before we mingle with people and supply their need. So, the last lesson, which we normally make the first, is the last one. Number three, show me by showing. So after you've copied Christ, after you've done it, then show me from the scriptures. Evangelism. You know, I'm reminded of a story of a certain woman who was, uh, this is an African-American uh, woman, integrated into the South, and she was the first black woman to move into a community that was all white. So she had a neighbor who was absolutely disgusted that a black neighbor had moved into the community. So every day, this white neighbor would shove feces into the yard of this new black neighbor. And she did this. Days turned into weeks. She kept on doing this. Weeks into months, months into years. Finally, this woman, this white lady, um, had a heart attack, and the very first person to visit her, you guessed it, the neighbor, the black neighbor. So she visited her and brought her a bushel of roses. And so this lady says, um, you are such a kind-hearted person. Do you know that I'm the one who used to shove feces into your yard? And this lady says, yeah, 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 I know, I know. She says, oh, okay, oh, you're such a kind-hearted person. At least you, 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 you forgave me and you didn't allow that to hinder you. Come see me since I'm not well. This lady said, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I just came to pray with you. She says, oh, you brought flowers. Yes, yes, red, red, red roses. Um, where did you get them? Did you buy them from the florist shop, from Jenny's? This lady said, no, 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 no. no. You ordered them online? No, 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 no. So where would you get the nice bushel of roses? Then this black lady said, I, these red roses grew from the feces that used to throw to me across the yard. Whatever a person may do to us should not change who we are. If you are a Christian, remain one. If someone shoves feces into your yard, it should be transformed into sweet-smelling roses. God is calling us today. And he is saying, 
If you are a Christian, be a Christian indeed. Show me your Christianity by copying Jesus Christ. Show me your Christianity by doing what Jesus practices. And show me your Christianity by showing it to me from the scriptures. And you leave it, then I will follow you. You know, Jesus Christ was a perfect example. He studied the word of God. You remember, we are told that Jesus, everything that he said to the devil in Matthew chapter 4, in response to the temptation, he responded saying, it is written. He was a person of the book. We need to be a people who study what we believe. And before we teach it, we need to copy Christ and do it. Jesus would study his scriptures. He would study the word of God. And he is someone who knew talk is cheap. So what would he do? He would mingle with people, evangelizing, see to their need, not be a people who are sanitized, who can talk to those who are not of our faith, people who can talk to the unchurched. And sometimes we try to shy away and hide away when we are seen with our friends who are all different from us, whether they may be having tattoos or nose rings or whatever it is. We are supposed to be a people who mix and mingle with the people as souls that are in need of Jesus Christ. And when we mix and mingle, supply their need, show them the love of the Father. And then lastly, then you open the scriptures. Show them from the truth. Show, me, show them by showing. Sometimes Christianity has got no effect and influence because we want to show them first without practicing what we teach. My prayer this morning is, may God help us to be a people who copy Christ, who do what he teaches, and then who teaches it. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful for the charge that you have given us. May you give us power, imbue us with your Holy Spirit and help us to practice the truth that you have so laid out in your word. What we pray for, Father, is that we may practice evangelizing more than evangelism. We need to be a people who practice what we preach. So help us, Father, as we part. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, transform us and change us. And in this world that we are living in, in this era, in this time, where the world is going through this pandemic, may Christians be seen to be a balm in Gilead to be the shoulder that lifts the weary, to be the air under the wings of the people that are tired, and to be the support system of the world in need. Now, Lord, as we part, we pray. May you imbue us with your Holy Spirit and help us to practice what we preach, to be a people who live what we sing about, and a people who pursue what we pray for. This is our prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. The grass withereth, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Wow, that was a powerful message from God through your servant, Pastor Chintembo. I believe you are blessed. Do tune in next week, same time. Stay safe. God bless you. Greetings to all the saints in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our discussion today is entitled, Three Levels of the Judgment and Their Implications on Our Family Life. For members of Mount Pleasant Church, this is a follow-up discussion to another discussion on the judgment that we had a couple of months ago. Now, before we begin uh, delving into God's Word, I want to request that we all pause for a moment of prayer. 
Let us pray. Our kind and loving Father in heaven above, we are grateful for this privilege that you have given unto us, assembling us and helping us to go through your word. Now as we discuss on the judgment, it's my prayer that your spirit may be with us and that you may help us understand and that you may convict us and help us to draw closer to you. Thank you for you, our God. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Three levels of the judgment and their implications to our family life. The word judgment from the Greek word crisis is defined in general as a judicial sentence, execution of a sentence, or rendering of a proper verdict. Simply defined, judgment talks about God's time of sitting as judge to give a ruling. God's time of sitting as judge to make a decision. God's time of sitting as judge to execute justice upon the inhabitants of the earth. According to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 6 to 7, the message of the judgment must reach all tongues, kindred, and people. Every person who is a resident on the earth, every person who is in the universe, must get to hear the message of the judgment. The book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 42, going onwards, tells us that when God shall judge, he will judge both the living and the dead. In simple terms, dying is not escaping from the effects of the judgment. Now, apart from judging people, both the living and the dead, the angels that did not keep their place of abode are also going to face the wrath of God in a judgment that God shall execute. When God is going to judge, the standard for the judgment is going to be the royal law. And this law includes the Ten Commandments, but also includes other things that are not necessarily part of the Ten Commandments, like, for example, the tithe and offerings. It's a requirement by God, not found in the Ten Commandments, but is also going to form part of the standard for the judgment. There are individuals that transgressed against God, and they've already faced His judgment. But God is not done with them yet. They have transgressed. God has been offended. He has judged them. But he is going to judge them yet again. Turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 11. I want to read verse 23 going onwards. Matthew chapter 11, reading verse number 23 and verse 24. Listen to what the Bible says here. It says, And thou, Capernaum, which art, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you, that's verse 24 now, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and verse 24, here is Christ rebuking cities in which his mighty works had been done but they repented not. And he says to Capernaum, You Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, you shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works that were done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have remained unto this day. Now the next text is scary to me. He therefore goes on to say, But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. So Christ is talking to Capernaum <coughs> and he is not happy 
with what they've done after his investment on them. <coughs> and he says in the judgment, if, if what I've done for you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have remained unto this day. But in the judgment to come, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum. While this statement shows that Capernaum shall be disciplined more than Sodom and Gomorrah, it also shows that Sodom and Gomorrah is still going to be part of the judgment to come. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah sinned against God, and God was not happy, and he rained fire from heaven and burnt the city and its inhabitants. Now, in a sense, that's a judgment. But when you read this text, it appears that God is not done with Sodom and Gomorrah yet. For he says, I, in the day of judgment, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning Sodom and Gomorrah are also going to be there. When God shall judge, the judgment is not going to be a once-off transaction. He is not just going to sit and do a judgment and be done with it. The judgment is going to be done in phases. And that informs the title of our discussion today, the three levels of the judgment and their implications on our family lives. Today is a, a family life day, and so we want to focus on how the judgment will affect us as families. There are three levels through which God is going to judge the universe. The first level of the judgment is called the pre-advent investigative judgment, or you can call it the investigative judgment. Pre means before, advent means coming, then, so it means that it is a judgment that takes place before the coming, and in this case, the coming of Christ. The first level of the judgment is the investigative judgment. It is a judgment that takes place before Jesus comes. By the time Jesus comes, his coming is just going to prove or to show to us the results of a judgment that has taken place before he has come. Matthew chapter 25, verse number 31. Listen to what the Bible says. It says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the gods. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, tells us that when the Son of Man shall come, he is going to sit on the throne of his glory, and all nations shall be gathered before him, and he is going to separate them just the same way a shepherd divides the sheep from the gods. So he is going to have the sheep on one side and the gods on the other side. In fact, if you read verse number 33 of the same chapter, it says, He shall set the sheep on his right, but the gods he shall set on his left. So when Christ is going to come, the record of the Bible tells us that he is going to separate nations just the same way a shepherd separates sheep from gods. The sheep are going to be on the right side of God, and the gods are going to be on the left side of God. Now, verse 46 tells us what he is going to do with the gods. If you read further up to verse number 46, it will tell you that the gods are going to be thrown into everlasting fire. But what makes, you know, what is of interest to me this morning is the fact that when Jesus is going to come, he is going to separate the sheep 
from the gods. Now, sheep are not going to become sheep because Jesus has come. And gods are not going to become gods because Jesus has come. One does not become a sheep or a god at the appearance of Christ. But the coming of Christ is simply going to prove who was a sheep and who was a god. The pre-advent investigative judgment is the first level of God's determined judgment on the earth. Now, this takes place before the coming of Jesus, and it is actually currently underway in heaven. So the pre-advent investigative judgment is taking place right now. It is already underway in heaven. By the, when, when Jesus shall come, he is going to simply show us the results of this judgment. Otherwise, the judgment is already on its, you know, is already taking place in heaven right now. Remember, when Christ ascended to heaven after the resurrection, he took his position on the right side of, of God as humanity's advocate. And from that time, the gospel of the kingdom is under instruction to be preached to every human creature. Whoever accepts its benefits by having Jesus mediate on his behalf passes from death even unto life. And the moment someone benefits from Christ's mediation, he is enrolled in the book which keeps the record of the righteous. The book of Psalm chapter 69 verse 28 shows us that there is a book in which Christ keeps the record of the righteous. Listen to this one. Psalm chapter 69 verse number 28. The Bible says, let him be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So there's a book in which God records the righteous. There's a book in which God, it's otherwise, in other words, called the book of life. There is a book in which God records those that have benefited from his mediatory function in the heavenly courts. Now, those who get to know the eternal gospel but choose to reject it, condemn themselves by their choice. There are obviously some people who hear the everlasting gospel and that will make a decision not to follow it. And those who condemn themselves by their actions or by their choices. The investigative judgment, dear friends, it separates the deserving and the undeserving, you know, uh, candidates. You know, it, it separates the deserving heavenly candidates from the undeserving ones. Remember from Matthew chapter 25, it separates sheep from, from gods. So it separates the deserving heavenly candidates from the undeserving ones. What does it mean? It means that everything that we are doing, every you know, act, every word, everything that we are doing in our lives, it is being recorded either to vindicate us or to condemn us. So, so the everlasting uh, the, the investigative judgment, its function is to separate the deserving heavenly candidates from the undeserving wicked ones. It further vindicates the deserving heavenly candidates, you know, for salvation, and they are placed on the waiting list for the resurrection in case they die. So when, when Christ is going through the, the investigative judgment, which is a judgment that takes place before his coming, He's simply separating deserving from undeserving. Sheep from gods. And the deserving, you know, are vindicated for salvation. And they are listed as candidates for the resurrection. 
if they die, they are already recorded in the courts of heaven. They will not be missed at the resurrection. It is one of their benefits because they would have been, you know, vindicated by Christ's mediatory function. The pre-advent investigative judgment also begins in the house of God to separate the genuine from the counterfeit. In churches today, we have people that are, we have a mixed bag. We have genuine people and we have counterfeit Christians. So the function of the investigative judgment is to separate genuine from counterfeit individuals. You know, I've heard people sometimes who say, ah, you know, we know, we know when they are living their lives in a way that is not in tandem with God's law. And sometimes when you try to rebuke them, they will tell you, don't tell me that. I'll, I'll sort it out with God in heaven. They believe that they will make it in the presence of God and repentant. But I want you to know that the function of the uh, investigative judgment is to separate the deserving from the undeserving uh, candidates, is to separate the genuine from the counterfeit uh, members. I want you to know that the church is a mixed bag right now. Even Christ at some point he was teaching in parables. He mentioned the parable of the net, where he said the net, uh, the casting of the net, is like the preaching of the gospel. And as the net draws fish to the shore, it mixes both the good and the bad fish. And that is the situation in the church today. We have good people in the church today. And we also have evil people in the church today. And that's why there has to be an, an investigative judgment which is going to separate these uh, two groups. Therefore, the investigative judgment takes much effect at death because while a person is still alive, they might still have a chance to have Christ mediate on their behalf. But it takes much effect at death. Because uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 26 to 27 says, For it is appointed unto all men once to die, and after that uh, uh, the judgment. At death, records of choices, both for good and evil, are closed. And the destiny of the deceased is ascertained and sealed. I've seen some people sometimes who pray for the dead, mediate for the dead, and, and try to, you know, negotiate with God on behalf of the dead. Once a person has died, their case is closed in as far as the investigative judgment is concerned. After all the inhabitants of the earth have had access to the gospel of the kingdom and known God's will preached to them through his ambassadors, then probation ceases in heaven. So what function is Christ doing right now? Christ is in heaven and is mediating on our behalf before the Father. But a time will come when Christ shall seed his intercessory portfolio and probation will close in heaven. And the book of Revelation chapter 22 verse 11 tells us what will happen when probation has closed. Revelation chapter 22 verse number 11. It says here, and he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. So as soon as probation closes, you know, uh, uh, as soon as Christ seeds his intercessory role in heaven, probation would have closed. And the first level of the judgment ceases too. Maybe let me put it across this way. The investigative judgment closes in several ways. Way number one, 
through which the investigative judgment clauses is through an individual's death. Once a person has died, the investigative judgment then ceases for that particular individual. Their case is closed. The investigative judgment can also close for a person when Christ is done in his intercessory law in heaven above. But the investigative judgment for people might also close while a person is still alive. God can even decide to simply end a person's probation even while they are still alive. We have several examples in the Bible where God cut off a person's probation while they are still alive. If you read from the book of Acts chapter 12, you learn of a man known as Herod. The Bible tells us that he was condemned of God and he was eaten of worms and he died. Now I want to believe that his probation closed while he was still alive. That's why God then allowed the worms to eat him until he was done and until he was dead. So Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary and he is ministering on our behalf. As soon as he is done, the first level of the investigative judgment, I mean of the judgment, which is the investigative judgment, will have what? Will have ended. And this will take place, you know, this will take place shortly before Jesus comes. So he sees his intercessory law and the pro probation closes and the investigative judgment ceases. And this is a short while before Jesus comes. And once probation ceases, repentance is no longer possible too. Because Jesus has ceded his intercessory portfolio in the heavens above. And next after this will be the falling of the seven last plagues upon the unregenerate of the earth. The first level of the judgment is called the pre-advent investigative judgment. And this judgment is taking place right now in the heavenly courts as Jesus is standing before the Father, mediating on your behalf and on my behalf. Our names are already being scrutinized. He sees all we do. He hears all we say. Everything that we are doing is, you know, forming part of the content of this investigative judgment and is going to determine whether you and me are going to make it when Christ shall come. And so it is an, it's very important as families that we consider our actions, we consider our doings, we consider how we live and lead our lives, and we ask ourselves if the probation is going to close, if the investigative judgment is going to close, either by the coming of Christ or by death, or even if God just decides, are we going to be on the right side as families? Now the investigative judgment closes and ushers in the coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 25 tells us of the coming of Christ. Matthew chapter uh, 24, let's take 24 this time. Matthew chapter 24, verse number 31, shares with us what happens as soon as the investigative judgment has closed. Matthew chapter 24, and reading verse number 31, the Bible says, And he shall send all his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven even to the other. So the moment the investigative judgment closes, the moment Christ finishes his intercessory role in the heavenly courts, the next step after that is his coming. Now this is very interesting, and I want us to go through it together slowly. When Christ is going to come, 
at the end of the investigative judgment, there are going to be four classes of individuals here on earth. There's going to be the righteous living. There's going to be the unrighteous living. There's going to be the wicked dead. And there's going to be the righteous dead. What is going to happen when Christ comes to these groups of individuals? The book of First Thessalonians shares something very interesting to these uh, on this uh, subject, First Thessalonians chapter 4, listen to verse number 16. The Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Listen to what it says, verse number 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So the investigative judgment has closed and it's now preparing us for the second level of the judgment, which is called the review. But I want us to go through the period between the first level and the second level. The period between the end of the investigative judgment and the, begin, or the beginning of the review, which is the second level of the investigative judge, of, of the judgment. The Bible tells us here that Christ comes down and the dead in Christ rise first. In other words, those that have died believing. In other words, those that died but were listed on the resurrection list. Those that died but had already made it in the investigative judgment. So when he comes, he's going to then resurrect those that are dead but had already made it in the investigative judgment. Listen to what the Bible goes on to say here. It says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the resurrected dead and the righteous that are already living are caught up together and they are taken to God so that they can be with God forever. But listen to what shall happen to the other class. Because here we are told that the dead in Christ rise, meaning the dead that are not in Christ do not rise. And the dead in Christ, now after they have risen, they are now alive, they join together with the righteous living and they are taken to heaven, which means what we now have on earth are the unrighteous dead and the unrighteous living. Now let's listen to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 8. The Bible says, Then shall the wicked be reviewed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now listen to what is going to happen to the unrighteous living. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 8, they will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. So the uh, righteous dead have raised and they've, and they've, they've joined together with the, they've arisen and they've joined together with the righteous living and they are taken together with Christ, you know, together to, I mean, by Christ what? To heaven. And the unrighteous dead have remained dead because they have not made it in the investigative judgment. The unrighteous living are destroyed by the brightness of, brightness of his coming because they have also not made it in the investigative judgment. I want you to know, members of Mount Pleasant Church and all of you God's children across the globe, that there are families that are going to fail to make it in the investigative judgment. And by the time Christ comes, 
they are either going to be found dead and they will not be raised, or they are going to be found uh, alive and they will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And I want to request you to ask yourself this question. Should Christ appear today in which class is your family going to be? Should Christ show up today in which class is your family going to be? Are you going to be in that class that shall have made it in the investigative judgment and are going to be taken to heaven or your family is going to be part of that class that will have failed in the investigative judgment and are either not resurrected because they'll be dead or they are not raised or they are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The coming of Jesus is going to usher in the end of the investigative judgment and is going to then, you know, uh, 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 guide us into the second level of the investigative judgment. But maybe let's dig a little more on this period between the first level and the second level of the judgment. Now the Bible tells us that the unrighteous are going to be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. What is it about this is coming which is going to destroy these people? You know the Bible tells us that Christ is going to come in his glory. The glory the, his glorious Christ the glory of the angels, and even the glory of the Father. So the brightness will be too much even for human beings to, to, you know, to stand. And because of that, human beings will not be able to stand. Now, if he is going to come in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels, it means the brightness will be too strong for a human being who has not been transformed to be able to stand. We have an example of the glory of the angels in the book of Matthew chapter 28. If you read verse 1 to verse number 4, the Bible tells us that when one angel descended from heaven, he was like, you know, he was like lightning and there was a great earthquake. For fear of him, the guards, the soldiers, looking at him, they failed to stand and they fell down and became like dead men. Now this could not stand the glory of one angel. And when Christ is going to come, at the end of the investigative judgment, he is going to bring all the heavenly beings with him. So the brightness will be too much for a human being to be able to withstand. But how are those that would have made it in the investigative judgment going to withstand this brightness of the coming of Christ? Listen to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Reading verse number 52. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So that those that have made it in the investigative judgment do not get consumed by the brightness of his coming, Christ is going to do us a favor so that you and I, your family and mine, do not get consumed by the brightness of his coming. If we make it in the investigative judgment, Christ is going to do us a favor. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, he is going to change us. And when he has changed us, this change is going to have two effects on us. Number one is going to remove perishability. In other words, one, the, the, the moment Christ changes us, we are going to become imperishable. Number two is we are, it's going to also shift our mortality and we will become immortal. 
So this change, number one, perishability. Number two, mortality. And once we have been transformed, it means that we will be able to stand the brightness of his coming. So what is going to make some families stand is because the families would have been changed by God at his coming. And I wish to ask you a question, even as you listen to this broadcast, whether your family is going to be part of that heavenly consignment that God is going to change. As you sit there listening to me, you need to ask yourself this question. Are you living your life in such a way that God is going to number you among those that are going to be changed? Those that are going to be transformed to become imperishable. Those that are going to be transformed to become immortal so that you can be able to go together with Christ even as he goes. Now we are still looking at this period between the first level of the judgment and the second level of the judgment. After Christ has transformed us and the unrighteous have died and have been left on the earth, then begins the journey of being taken to heaven. Now, if you read your Bibles in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 talks about signs of the coming of Christ and the coming of Christ. And after you are done with Revelation chapter 6, it ends with a question. After John has seen the signs of the coming of Christ and he wonders, Lord, who is going to be able to stand, you know, such a dreadful coming? I mean, as you are going to come, who is going to be able to stand? And so uh, it's part of the sixth seal. And in Revelation chapter 7, uh, deliberately John skips, you know, doesn't talk about the seventh seal. He deliberately starts responding to the question of Revelation chapter 6, which is found in the, which is part of the, of the sixth seal. He starts explaining those that are going to be able to stand when Christ shall come. In other words, those that are going to make it in the investigative judgment. And when he is done explaining those or that are going to stand in Revelation chapter 8, verse number 1, he then talks about the seventh seal which describes the coming of Christ. And now listen, dear friends, to what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 8, verse number 1. It says, and when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. Now the seventh seal describes the time that Christ will come from heaven to take you and I after our families have made it in the investigative judgment to take us to heaven. And the Bible tells us that the span of time is about half an hour. And you will agree with me that in prophecy, a day represents a year. And the Bible is telling us here that the space that Christ is going to take, you know, the time that Christ is going to take to take you and I to heaven is just about half an hour. Maybe for a few seconds, for a few minutes, let us just do a bit of uh, holy mathematics just to calculate how long it's going to take those that would have made it in the investigative judgment to make it to heaven. So one day represents a year. In other words, 24 hours represents one year. The Hebrew month, unlike our months, is 30 days. Or the months in the Hebrew calendar have 30 days. So if one month has 30 days, 12 months in a Hebrew year will represent about 360 days. So one day represents 360 days. 24 hours, which represents one day, is equal to about 360 days. Now let's 
go on to you know, divide both sides, say, by two. 12 hours would then represent about 180 days. Let's divide both sides by two. Six hours will represent about 90 days. Let's divide both sides by two. Three hours will then represent about 45 days. Now, let's divide by, by three. One hour will then represent about 15 days. Now, Revelation chapter 8, verse number 1, tells us that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So if one hour represents about 15 days, then half an hour stands for about seven and a half days. If you are reading the book, Early Writings, you know, page 13 to page 19, the writer says, uh, being shown a vision of people going to heaven, she says, we were ascending to the sea of glass for about seven and a half days. So when the pre-advent investigative judgment has ended, and God is now taking those that have made it, he, it will take roughly about, to take them, the process of taking them there, will take roughly about seven days, you know, about seven and a half days, you know, to take these saints to heaven. Now, the moment the saints are taken to heaven, the second phase of the judgment begins. And the second phase is called the review. The book of Revelation chapter 20, verse number 6, tells us how long the review is going to take. Revelation chapter 20, reading verse number 6. Listen to what the Bible says here. It says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So after your family and mine have been saved, we then are ushered to heaven so that we, we take part in the second level of the judgment, which is called the review, or uh, which is a process of reviewing our documents. And the Bible tells us here that this review is going to take roughly about 1,000 years. I need to hasten to make it clear that only families that would have made it in the investigative judgment are going to be part of the second level of the judgment, which is called the review. If you have not made it in the first level, you cannot graduate to the second level. If your family has not made it in the first level, your family will not graduate to the second level. So you need to constantly be asking yourself this question. Is my family going to make it in the first level of the judgment? Is my family going to graduate into the second level of the judgment? Now listen to me. I want to talk to spouses at this point. I want you to know that if you are married, you need to pray for several things. Number one, you need to pray for yourself to make it into the second level of the judgment. But as you pray for yourself, you need to also be praying for your spouse to make it into the second level of the judgment. Because if you make it and your spouse doesn't make it, there's going to be a, an embarrassing, a brief embarrassing moment for you even in the second level of the judgment because of the nature of the second level of the judgment. It's a review uh, level of a judgment where we are going to be looking at documents, where we are going to be reviewing files of those that have not made it into this you know, uh, a second phase of the judgment to determine why they could not make it. You know, one of the, uh, my favorite writers of our faith, 
says in heaven, we shall be able to identify each other facially. While there's not going to be marriage in heaven, I would want to believe that as soon as you get to heaven, while there'll be no marriage, I want to believe that one of the first people you want to look for if you are married is your spouse or your child or, or your parents or the people that are closest to you. And when you are in that, in that you know, uh, during that phase of the judgment, if you don't find them in heaven, you'll need to know why they couldn't make it to heaven. And therefore, we are then going to review documents to check why those that couldn't make it, couldn't make it. And it's going to be a painful moment for families whose close members are going to fail to make it. Because the Bible tells us that those that make it in the first level of the judgment, they are going to participate in judging those that could not make it. Listen to the book of Matthew chapter 19 verse number 28. The Bible says, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, in other words, in the new life, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you shall sit upon twelve stones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, judging the world. So those that would have made it in the first level of the judgment, one of their functions during the 1,000-year period is to participate in judging those that could not make it. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to verse number 3, you know, shares again a similar thought. Paul talks to the church in First Corinthians chapter 6, listen to verse number 1 to verse number 3. The Bible says, Day any of you having a matter against one another, go to the law before the unjust and not before the saints. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? The saints shall judge the world. So for 1,000 years, we are going to participate in reviewing the files of those that couldn't make it. You know, the clause of probation in heaven shuts the pre-advent judgment. And the next stage is the second coming of Christ, which marks the beginning of the millennium. All saints, the dead resurrected, and those found alive at the second advent of, of Christ, they live for heaven, where they will spend 1,000 years. And during the 1,000-year period, you know, uh, during the 1,000-year period, we will participate in the second level of the judgment. And the Bible shows us that authority will be handed to the saints, you know, and we will be able to judge those that couldn't make it. Now, just imagine, if your spouse doesn't make it, and you are in heaven, and you look all over for this familiar face that you associated with before we got saved. And you ask the angels, and the angels cannot find your spouse. And then they say, okay, fine, since we cannot find them here, on, here in, the universe, in, in, in heaven, let's check the files. And files will be opened, and records of unpardoned sin are noticed. And reasons why a person could not make it are revealed. And that's why I said for all spouses, as you pray for yourself to make it into the investigative judgment, you also need to pray for your husband, for your wife, that they also make it. Because if they do not make it during the 1,000 years, you are going to see the reasons why they couldn't make it. And some of the reasons will be very embarrassing. For some wives, you are going to notice in the books that when your husband left saying they were going to Dubai on a business trip, 
they were doing other things. You are going to notice that when your husband left for South Africa saying they are going to attend a business symposium, you are going to notice that in their hotel room, they had another woman. They invited somebody else to live with, and they were living another life, you know, away from you. You are going to see embarrassing moments. You are going to see, you know, those things that even the newspapers of today could not pick. That's why it is important that as we pray for ourselves, we also pray for our families to make it in heaven. I would want to believe that in the uh, second phase of the judgment, which is called the, the review, there's going to be a brief episode of mourning. I want to believe there's going to be a brief episode of crying. As you realize, this person that I called my one and only wife, this person that I trusted in as my husband, this person that I so put my faith in, you know, he has, he has just failed. This is what they were doing. And I could not see it during my days with them before we got saved. I did not know that when he says he's going to South Africa, this is what he's doing. I did not know that when she was at work, out in workshops at these hotels, this is what she was doing. I did not know that at the school where she's teaching, she was associating in this way with this particular teacher. I did not know that was when she went out. See a time and again on a WhatsApp message, on a WhatsApp, she was texting other men and quickly deleting the evidence. I did not know that she was doing this and doing that. All those things are going to be reviewed in the second level of the judgment, which is called the review. And I would want to believe that there's going to be an episode of crying. No wonder why the musician says, God shall wipe away all tears. And if God is going to wipe away all tears, I believe those are not exactly tears of joy. Because if there would be tears of joy, then there would be no need to wipe tears of joy. But there will be tears of this realization that we were living with people that were living other lives. That this so-called elder was not an elder after all. That this so-called pastor was not a pastor after all. This so-called good husband was not a good husband after all. My child, when they were in China at university, this is the life they were living. They were not married, but they were living like they were married. And when they would come to back home, they would pretend as though they are a church person that loves Sabbath school. They would chorister, they would preach, they would participate in church activity. But the moment they go back to university, this is the kind of life they were living. And this process is going to take about 1,000 years. The book, Great Controversy, page 660 to page 661, tells us that the saints are going to participate in this judgment called the review. In fact, this book deepens it. It says we are actually going to recommend, you know, length of discipline to God for those that would not have made it in the investigative judgment. Now imagine, if your family does not make it, and you have to participate in making out a discipline for them, it's going to be a tough moment. That is why on this Family Life Day, we must sit down and reflect and think, are our families going to make it in the investigative judgment? Because once they've made it in the investigative judgment, they naturally you know, graduate into the second level of the judgment, which is called the review, where documents will be opened and discipline would be recommended. And the saints shall participate. So if your family does not make it, you are going to participate in the discipline of your fellow family members who could not make it. Now after 
the 1,000 years is done, it ushers in the third and final level of the judgment. And the Bible calls it the final judgment or the executive judgment. And this judgment comes after God is done dealing with after all the reviewing and all the recommendations have been given for the discipline of those that couldn't, couldn't make it. By the way, I want you to know that in the final judgment, those that couldn't make it are going to be disciplined. But their length, the length of their discipline is not going to be the same. The length of their discipline is going to be determined by the review of the files during the uh, second level of the judgment, which is called the review. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 21, verse number 8, that there's going to be an executive judgment. And this judgment is going to be a lack of fire. Revelation chapter 21, and I want us to read verse number 8. And listen to what the Bible says here. Verse number 8 of Revelation chapter 21, the Bible says here, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and warmongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burneth with brimstone and this is the second death. So we have the first resurrection and the second resurrection. We have the first death and the second death. Those that shall make it in the first resurrection shall not be affected by the second death. Those that shall be raised on the second resurrection are a consignment for the second death. So these people are just raised so that they die again. They are just raised so that they are given reasons why they must die. And the Bible shows us that they are, they are, the process of their dying is in a fire that shall burn with brimstone. And the Bible tells us some of the people that are going to burn in this fire. And among those people are idolaters, are sorcerers. I know you are not a sorcerer. You are probably not an idolater. But I want you to know that even liars are going to be part of this group of individuals. They are people in families that live a lie. They pretend to be uh, God-fearing young men before their parents, but they are living a lie before their parents. <clears throat> they are husbands that in, are in families and they live a lie. They pretend to be caring, but in the backyard of their lives, they are living some other life altogether. They are wives that are living a lie, that pretend to be straightforward people. I want you to know that if we do not change, brethren, we are a consignment for this judgment that is going to come. And the Bible tells us that those that will not make it, those that will not make it in this judgment are going to be burnt by fire. Listen to the book of Revelation chapter 20, verse number 9. It says here, it talks about these, uh, 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 these un un unbeliever, unbelieving people that have been raised. You know, let, let me just begin it maybe from uh, chapter 20, verse 7. It says, and when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his uh, prison and shall go about to deceive nations that are in the four corners of the earth. Check where Satan is. It is in the four 
corners of the earth, meaning these would have been resurrected now so that they are given, you know, the results of the 1,000-year review period. Now listen to verse number 9. It says, Then they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the city of the saints, that beloved city, and fire came down from heaven out of God and devoured them. If you are reading the book of Revelation chapter 21 going downwards, John tells us that the new Jerusalem is going to come down. But when it has come down, the Bible tells us that the devil and the resurrected and faithful shall compass the city to attempt to destroy it. But the Bible then tells us how they are going to be destroyed. They are going to be destroyed by fire which comes down from heaven out of God, from, from God out of heaven. And this is the fire that shall be the final or executive judgment. And it's going to be for those that would have failed to make it in the first level of the judgment or the investigative judgment. And when they are going to be bent by this fire, how, you know, how, you know, what is the length of their burning? I want you to know that all these people are going to be bent until they are no more. But the length of their being bent is going to differ depending on the results of the review. But eventually, this is what is going to happen. Listen to what the Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, verse number 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be as stubble. Other versions say they shall be as ashes. And the day cometh that shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But to you that fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing. So while some families are going to have the son of righteousness arising with healing in its wings, some are going to bend. And after they have been bent, God is going to do us a favor. Those of us that are going to have made it in the investigative judgment through the review, God is going to do us a favor. After these have been bent, he's going to do us a favor. He is going to erase the memory of those that, are, that will not have made it so that we don't remember them anymore, so that we don't think about them anymore, and so that we can freely enjoy heaven and earth restored. And he's going to recreate the earth, and in that earth recreated, there's going to be no harm. It's going to be a free earth that will be having no harm and no risk of the devil ever rising again. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 to verse 9, tells us what kind of an earth is going to be. As there are several verses, but maybe I'll just limit myself to Isaiah chapter 11, and we're reading verse number 6 to verse number 9. Listen to what the Bible says here. 11, verse 6 to verse 9. The Bible says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. My favorite is verse number 7 and verse number 8. Listen to what it says. The cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Listen to verse number 9. And the suckling child shall play in the hole of an asp, and the wind child shall put his hand into 
the den of an adder, but shall not be harmed. And this is prepared by God only for those families who would have made it in the investigative judgment. I want you to know, dear friends, as I wind my presentation to you, I want you to know that you only need to make it in the investigative judgment and the rest will take care of itself. And you also only need to fail in the investigative judgment and the rest is done. And if you make it in the investigative judgment, you have automatically made it in the review. And if you, after the review, you are also going to be vindicated in the final or executive judgment. And the final executive judgment is the fire of hell, the fire that shall burn and destroy all the wicked. And this is also what is called the fire of hell. But let me share this with you. God wants all of us to make it in the investigative judgment. And he is going to do the best for all families so that we make it in the investigative judgment. And if you do not make it, it's your decision as an individual or your decision as a family that's going to make you not make it because God is going to do everything possible to make you make it. Now, let me just share this with you. Part of what God is prepared to do to ensure that you make it. They are individuals. So that they make it in the investigative judgment. They are individuals that God is going to allow even to die so that they make it. If you read the book, Early Writings, page 13 to page 19, you learn of a man known as Charles Fitch. The record says he was a powerful Millerite preacher, and he would not rest until he had served every sinner that was there. He would not rest until he had preached or baptized every believing individual. The, Bible, the, the, the book tells us that Fitch would always would overwork himself. And at some point after Fitch, he had worked hard for a long time. We are told that Fitch, while after he had worked for a long time, he was resting at his house. And he was told by some people that, Brother Fitch, you are resting. But there are some individuals that have given their lives to Christ. You know, some miles from where Fitch was saying, was staying. Now, the book, Early Writings, you know, the story is right in the Early Writings, but page 13 to page 19, you meet where the writer talks of Fitch as being a person who shall be saved. But uh, Fitch, when he was told that there, there are people that had uh, repented and they had given their lives to Christ, the record says Fitch walked many miles to where these people could be found, and he baptized them in cold water. There were many of them, and he stood in cold water for a long time. And by the time he was done baptizing them, uh, Fitch had uh, you know, contracted an illness, and he never survived from that illness. Now, if you are reading the book, Light, Bear Us to the Remnant, it will tell you that you know, Christ was expected to come during those days. They believed that Christ was going to come sometime in 1844, about 22 October, 1844. The record says, you know, as they were waiting for the coming of Christ in, on the 22nd of October, 1844, the record says Fitch died on around the 16th of 
October, you know, barely two weeks before the expected day of the coming of Christ. It is said that his family and friends never mourned him much. After all, they were expecting to see him in just about two weeks. They buried him in a shallow grave because they expected a resurrection. But Christ did not come, so fish did not get raised. One of my favorite writers commenting on the death of Fitch. He says, she says, Fitch had so strongly believed in the coming of Christ in 1844 that if, if, that if Christ had allowed him to live to the 22nd of October and if he had noticed that Christ had not come, Fitch would have died and would have been very disappointed and might have died out of the faith. And so Christ in his righteousness and in his mercy to save fish from the disappointment that was coming, he allowed him to rest on the 16th of October when Christ was expected to turn up on the 22nd so that he would not see that this whole thing was a misunderstanding. So he allowed fish to rest so that fish would make it in the investigative judgment. I want you to know, brethren, that Christ is going to do everything possible so that you make it. Some of us, some of your family members, are going to be allowed by God to rest in the cold soil so that they can make it in the investigative judgment. If God is going to do everything possible, it means the failure of our families to make it is solely resting on decisions that we are going to make. Are you going to make a decision as a family to pray hard, work hard for your salvation so that you make it in the investigative judgment? If that's your prayer, why don't you pause as I pray for you? Dear Lord, thank you for this special privilege of prayer. Forgive us of all sins. Heal us as families. The investigative judgment will affect families. Some shall make it, some shall not. You are going to do everything possible so that every family makes it. So those families that will fail to make it, will fail to make it not because of you, but because of their decisions as families. So I pray for all families that are paying attention to this broadcast, that you may give them the power to make a decision to want to be saved as a family. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Cool. Thank you for spending your Sabbath day with us. We hope you were immensely blessed by our program, A Family Apart But Together. We wish you a good week ahead and we will meet you same time next week. Good morning, the Living Church of God, and welcome to our worship service this morning. Let us start with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this Sabbath day. We want to thank you for the gifts and the blessings that you've afforded us in this week. And Father, as we gather in your house of worship today, we pray that your Holy Spirit may come and minister to us. And as we listen to the word that will be shared this morning, that we may be truly transformed and become a people 
that love their God and love to work for their God. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. Welcome to all our viewers uh, who are watching this program from different parts of the world. We thank God for such technology, which has proved that God cannot be limited or confined, but that his word shall get through to his people, even in this time of lockdown. Today is Women's Ministries Emphasis Day and a celebration of all women, young and old, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church worldwide. Here at Mount Pleasant Church in Harare, Zimbabwe, we join the global church in this celebration. And as the young people will say, we send a big shout out to our mothers, to our sisters, our gogos, our aunts, our BFFs, our daughters and our nieces, all who make up women's ministries. Our topic of consideration today is God's amazing love moves me. Let me start by a foreword or an introduction uh, that was delivered to us by the Women's Ministries Director at General Conference, Mrs. Heather Dawn Small. And this is what she had to say about women's ministries today. She says the day is the day to thank God for his love and his grace, as well as gifts and blessings that we have used to build each other as sisters, as well as the church at large. The theme today centers on God's love for us, not only as individuals, but how he loves to work in and through us. The key word she uses today is relationships. She encourages us to make relationships with God, with our spouses, with our children, with family members, friends, and even with strangers. She says love is the root of all relationships. Not our love, but God's love working in and through us. Our anchoring scripture today comes from the first book of John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. And I will read in your hearing from the New King James Version. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God has manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. As we start our discussion today, let me pose a few questions to you. First question is, how has knowing Christ made a difference in your life? Are you any different this year than you were last year? Has the life, love of Christ for you changed you? If we were to ask the people closest to you, what would they say to these about you? These are very difficult questions to answer. But as we share, let me answer them according to 
what I have observed in my own life. Firstly, knowing Christ has made me more rational. It has made me a more tolerant person and more patient and more attuned to the needs of those in my circle. I'm definitely better than I was last year. Some issues of life that I'd struggled with for a long time became clearer to me as I read the Word of God and as it brought me to a better understanding about how to deal with some of these issues. The love of Christ has changed me. I have revelation through the word that God indeed loves us, that we have daily provision, we need not be anxious, and his arms are always open wide for us to walk through to him with any needs that we may have. Lastly, oh dear, it is my hope that my community members have noticed a change in me and can attest to that. Let us explore God's love in action. So stories are often told about how God is present in our lives and helps us as we go through our, our lives and through our journeys of life. I've seen a poster in a friend's house that depicts a troubled man walking along a sandy beach and he's having a conversation with God. He asked God, why have you left me as I'm walking through this very difficult phase in my life? And God responds to him and says, I promised you that I will never leave nor forsake you. And I also promise you that even when you go through the deepest waters or through the fiery furnace of your life, I'll be right there with you. Then the man says, but no, Lord, you are not with me because even as I'm walking on this sandy beach, I only see my footprints in the sand. Where are you? God then says to me, to him rather, yes, that is true. There is only one set of footprints in the sand, but those are my footprints because I'm carrying you on my back. This depiction touched me and reminded me that although we do not see God physically, when we are going through difficult times, and maybe when we score some small victories along the way, we begin to see the presence of God in our journey. That realization often brings us to tears. It pulls at our heartstrings. And it brings us to an acknowledgement that God loves us and is indeed ever present. But it is also true that even if we don't score any immediate victories, God still walks with us and carries us along our journey. God's love is truly amazing. His love caused him to send his only son to this earth to die for us so that we could have eternal life. This is told in the verse in John chapter 3, verse 16, a very famous verse, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Now let me pose a question and say, would you give up any one of your children for the life or for the love of someone else? I have two boys and I love them very dearly. I cannot imagine having to give up one of them for the love of someone else, a friend, a family member, let alone 
sacrificing for someone else, a stranger. But this is what God did. The Apostle Paul in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, the, the text that we are moving with along today, affirms this love that God has for us and repeats the fact that Jesus was sent to die for our sins. The text in John 3 verse 16 uses the word perish. It doesn't use the word die. Perish is loaded with calamity, with devastation, with alienation or obliteration. This is what we would have had to face had Jesus not come to save us. But this is the true love of God. And this is the true love that he has for you and me. That he would give up his son Jesus to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. We otherwise would have been condemned to eternal death with no possible reconciliation to our Father. In our passage of consideration today, John also highlights that God has called each and every one of us to share his love with those that are around us. In women's ministries, we say, touch a heart and reach the world. The touch we speak of is to attend to those with needs by sharing God's caring love. And life has so many challenges. We can't even begin to talk about the pandemic that we are living through now and how it has affected the lives of many. In times like this, it is very easy for one to retract to their own needs and forget about the needs of those around them. However, if God lives in us and we know him intimately, we will share his love, even if we're in the middle of our own difficulties. Verse 7 tells us that the source of love is God. Any other love does not come from God and it is not true love. And we have seen testament of this, that the love we feel as humans often fails when challenged by circumstances. And humans do change their minds. They fall in and out of love. But God's love is unconditional and it never fails. The nature of God's love and its state of perfection is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where he uses descriptions such as long-suffering, does not envy, bears all things, and never fails. By this, we can only agree that only God is capable of dispensing this kind of love because humans will definitely be found wanting. God will love us regardless of our shortcomings the number of times we have sinned, the nature of the sin, and even our hearts of stone. And he says this in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, where he says he has loved us with an everlasting love and has drawn us to himself with loving kindness. God is teaching us that we ought to love others as he has loved us with patience, with kindness, 
whether we're struggling or not. We should love anyway. One of my favorite verses about love and fellowship amongst the brethren is found in Psalms chapter 133, verse 1, which says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity cannot be achieved without common purpose. And common purpose cannot be achieved without love for one another. We know the story of the Pentecost. The believers were in one accord. They were in union. They were in unison. And that's how the Holy Spirit was able to visit them at that time. And being in one accord could only have been achieved if they had love for one another. The love of Christ does bring together and bind the brethren. Now, for, for God's love to manifest in us, we need to love him. John has clearly shown us that to be able to love one another, this ability to love will come from a knowledge of God. Verse 8 emphasizes this point, stating clearly that if one does not love others, he does not truly know God. We cannot profess to love when we don't know God. Knowing God and knowing the things of God are two different things. You may come to church every Sabbath. You may return your tithes and offerings. You could even give of your time and your means. But if these are not coming from the well of love of God, then this effort is in vain. Imagine doing all this and still be lost and not know God. And for your life to never show that you know God. At this point, I would say, let us evaluate our hearts and ask ourselves if we have the love of God in us and whether we truly know God. Let us plead with the Lord to bring change to our hearts and to begin to manifest his love in our walk of faith. Now, let me tell you a, a personal story. I thoroughly enjoyed my high school years. I was very popular. I had very good grades. I received accolades for sport and other curricular activities. I took English literature, history, and geography as my A-level subjects. My favorite was English literature. I enjoyed history, but I totally hated geography. But I had to take all three subjects for me to gain entrance into university. You're probably wondering why I'm telling you this story, but stay with me. When we think about loving others, we come in the face of many challenges. Some people are very difficult to love. Some people are very easy to love. Let's start with those that are easy to love. Those that are easy to love will be like my favorite subject of English literature. I didn't complain about my English assignments. I wrote them with passion, with much depth, and I would do thorough research and put every effort into them. This is like those people that are easy to love. Those people do not pose us with problems. They are very cooperative and are grateful. Or are those that we have very many things in common with. Then 
They are the history people. Although this was not my favorite subject, I enjoyed it anyway, and I would put reasonable effort towards getting good marks. The history people are not necessarily our buddies, but we call them not bad, and we can sit and chat with them. We'll even help them and go out of our way for them, but we are not consistent. We don't do it for them all the time. Because they are not bad, we accommodate them or we tolerate them. Then there's the geography people. Like my geography subject, we can't stand them. They pose great difficulty and we have developed a mental block that we do not like them and we are going to avoid them. Yet with an open mind and maybe a little extra effort, the subject may have been easier for me and I would have been able to get a decent grade. And I would have found out that it wasn't so hard after all. The geography people are often people we have preconceived ideas about. And yet with more engagement, we could learn that they are not so bad after all. My dislike for geography cost me, by the way. When I got my A-level results, I didn't make the adequate points I needed to get into university. I cried for days, but I had brought this onto myself. But imagine this, if my university reality became our heaven reality, imagine if we missed heaven because we did not love or reach out to the geography people. With a bit of patience, persistence, and consistency in our behavior, God can use us to influence those we find difficult to love and to bring them to a knowledge of God. Consistency builds trust and it builds confidence. And those that are watching us will be moved by our consistent conduct and portrayal of a people moved by God's love. What shall our prayer be then? Will it be that God changes the geography people or that God changes us? When society looks at us, do they see a love that amazes them? Do they see Jesus? We should exhibit a love that compels, a love that urges, a love that controls us to love the English people, the history people, the geography people as well. We could even add the physics and the chemistry people in the lot. The love of God compels us to love all people. Let our prayer be that God changes our hearts and makes us new creatures. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if a man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things become new. When we are in Christ, we take on his nature of righteousness, his nature of forgiveness, of eternal life, and of everlasting joy. The new creature in us will reveal an internal and external change in behavior. Externally, we exude a change in behavior and a joy on our faces. And internally, our hearts and our minds and our thinking changes. 
The Christ in us changes us and propels us to a new behavior. The old habits, the old attitudes, the old behaviors will disappear. However, we may be challenged and the old habits may resurface here and there if we start looking to ourselves and we lose sight of Christ. But seeking Jesus daily, we overcome these challenges as Christ's love will continually work within us. Let us go out and share God's love. Once we have received God's love, we have to share it and pass it on to others. As we do that, they too are moved by the fact that God loves them. They can see it in us and they too will be compelled to pass it on to others. Them knowing that God loves them no matter their circumstances will make a difference between a life of pain and that of joy. Just knowing that you are loved lightens the burden that you carry. What the world lacks right now is the love of God in the hearts of people. The challenges of the world have hardened the hearts and made people selfish and inconsiderate. Even those in the church have become despondent and fatigued. But we know the love of God will overcome feelings of guilt, feelings of regret, loneliness, sadness, anger, hopelessness, and unforgiveness. Those of us who know the love of God are duty-bound to be joy-givers who bring the love of God to his children in need. God has a special calling for the church today. And this is what he's saying to us. He's calling us to salvation through Jesus Christ. He has called us to surrender our lives to him so that he lives in us. He calls us to spend time with him daily and receive his Holy Spirit and the gifts he brings. He calls us to be one with him and his church as we reach out to those in our communities and to those who need a touch of God and a touch of his love in their lives. As we go forth today, let us receive his love daily and share it with those we meet. And God today has a specific call to women. And God is calling for women who will fully surrender to him daily in prayer and supplication. Women that will study his word daily to learn of his thoughts towards us. Women that will love him and are willing to give their lives as a sacrifice to God. Women that put God ahead of all else, including their families, their friends, their jobs, their hobbies, everything at all, and put God first. And God is calling for women that are willing to serve others wholeheartedly. If you want to be such a woman moved by God's amazing love, please join me and be upstanding to demonstrate that God has an army of women who are ready and willing to love the world for him. You're watching from different parts of the world and I call you to be upstanding at this moment and stand up for Jesus wherever you are. Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day that the women in the church are praising you for your love, which moves them into action. The women have stood up and put their hands up with much confidence that they become part of your army that will take your love to those in need. Equip them, Lord, with all form of wisdom, with knowledge, with provision, and with willing hearts to do the work that you have set out for them. Lord, we pray for the women of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Zimbabwe, that they stand up and stand up for Jesus. When you return, Lord Jesus, we all want to stand in line to receive our crowns and an embrace from you congratulating us for representing you well. Lord, we pray that you bless the women of Zimbabwe and the women of the world over. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. In closing, let us share the commandment that Jesus gave us before he ascended to heaven. And we find this verse in John 31, verse 34. And it says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, when you have loved one for another. This commandment is shared with you and me, that we love one another and show the world how God has loved us. By this, the world will be more receptive to the word of God and we can play our part in winning souls for the kingdom. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Good evening, church. Happy Sabbath. Yes, it's always difficult standing in front of you all with such a task. But I pray that God gives me the strength and the ability to take you through what was inspired um, and impressed on my heart. So, virtuous living in an unvirtuous world. Uh, when I went through the guided material that was there, as my Mangonvinde said, it was very complex. There was a lot. And I said to myself, how best can I synthesize this so that it's easily digestible? And it took me to something that I had been reading myself, um, which was talking about Jesus being the extreme forgiver. Uh, so, uh, as I went through that journey and then this message came through, I thought, wow, I needed to share something that I had read here with everyone. So the first verse that I'd like to share with you comes from John 8, verse 10 to 11. It says, when Jesus lifted up, lifted himself, lifted up himself and saw no one but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those, um, the, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Mark 2, verse 17 says, on hearing this, Jesus told them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So let us meditate upon those two verses as I go through the sermon, because at the bottom line is, um, 
those critical words that Jesus gave. Neither do go says um, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what is a virtue? When we look at um, a quotation from Mrs. White, it says, It is the glory of God to give us his virtue. It is the glory of God to give his virtue to his children. This comes from Acts of the Apostles, page 530. So the question is, what is the virtue? And already you know that when you look at the standard of life, Jesus is the standard. There's no one else to look to because there's no one else who was so perfect and pure and yet so compassionate and loving. So Galatians tells us about the fruits of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Jesus was the whole embodiment of those virtues. We also see that um, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you can actually have those fruits. Not one, not a few, but all of them. Because the Spirit of God is supporting you and guiding you through that process. Um, I also read from Ephesians 4 verse 1. This is also in addition to these virtues that we, 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 we are getting from Galatians. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing for one another in love. Uh, verse 32 also says, And be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So when I looked at these virtues and I asked myself, virtuous living in an unvirtuous world, what are the unvirtuous things that are happening in this world? And it was clear that um, there's a lot of unvirtuous things and it's not easy for people to be the kind of people we need to be within these circumstances. I saw this sickness. Right now we've got the dreaded COVID-19 coronavirus um, that is plaguing the world. We've got hunger that is also plaguing the world. I think if we look at Harare as a city, we have no water, no clean drinking water. It's a struggle. For you to see water coming through the taps, you're lucky. However, dare to drink it. Your luck will soon run out. Um, there's also people who are committing crimes, so there are people in prison. But there's, these are the things that we see, and then the things that we don't see. Um, the rate at which depression and mental illness is so, ravage, is so ravaging the, 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 the world is unbelievable. Stress, depression, sorrow, people are struggling to cope. Then there are the people who are struggling with addictions. What kind of addictions? There's a myriad of addictions. Um, in the scope of the world, we've got people who have alcohol addictions, drug addictions. In this new age, they call them technology natives, these young ones because they grew up in, a, in an era of technology. However, technology in itself is becoming an addiction. Can anybody actually say that today, this day, 
they did not touch their phone, doing nothing besides receiving a call. Anyone? Anyone? So, <laughs> there we go. I think we all need support. <laughs> but um, when we look, go back to what the Bible asks us to do, my husband and I, my supportive husband and I, <laughs> we were watching a sermon by Pastor Henry Wright. And Pastor Henry Wright was talking about this very, this very issue where he was saying that, what is the church supposed to do? What is the church supposed to, 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 to embody when it looks at people? Because the church is not for programs, but the church is for people. So he went on and he was very elaborate. He said, with the ring in the nose, with the little skirt, with the hair all crazy, these are the people we're meant to embrace and receive. And receive. If we go back to what I was talking about in relation to addictions, right? Let's try and imagine what an addiction is going through in their head, in their mind, and unpack it. So essentially, what does addiction look like? So addiction means lack of control, lack of self-control in all its facets. They have the desire to quit, but they lack the willpower and they lack the strength. They also spend a lot of time seeking to feed their addiction. So um, ask yourself, here we're looking at, when, when we're thinking about this, it's always okay, this is a person who's addicted to drugs, this is a person who's addicted to alcohol. But let's try and personalize this, because um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I might be calling it an addiction, but what we're talking about is sin here. So what is it that makes you lose self-control? Every time you try to fight it, you go back to it. My personal addiction was Pinterest. I love Pinterest. It's a social media, social networking, something, something. So um, it's got a whole bunch of images that speak to the topic that you're looking for. And um, every night before I slept, after, if I was lucky, read my Bible, I would fall asleep to Pinterest. Just be pinning, 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 pinning. And if I didn't, I would wake up in the night and pin, right? That was my addiction. The thing is, we have to introspect and be honest. Um, I wanted to quit, but I couldn't. And I think a lot of us can say the same about Facebook. You know, as you are going on Facebook and you see your feed, there are things that people you're friends with um, look at or watch that come up on your feed that, not, that are not so palatable. And because it's on your feed, you can't avoid but see it, right? I went through that before I left Facebook in 2015, and it was the hardest thing, and I said, if I leave Facebook, what about my friends? Um, so I wanted to quit, but I was unable at the time. And then spending a lot of time trying to get that thing that feeds your addiction, be it the drugs, be it the alcohol. How many people have run out of data and felt like their life is about to end? Right. Okay, I think I've touched something personal. <laughs> but also, we lack responsibility when we have these sins that we, 
that we nurture. We lack responsibility, and it's, it's like a craving, you know? It's like, I can tell you that um, when I think of a Danish, my mouth waters, you know? I don't have to eat it to taste it. I just have to think of it, and I already, I'm full. I've done the digestion process, everything is done, you know? And then these sins and these addictions, they also impact on our relationships, right? Think about it. Um, there's nothing that we do that is bad that has a positive bearing on our relationships. Let's look at um, a sexual addiction. You cannot be faithful to your partner. There is no way that feeding that addiction will bring positivity into the relationship with your spouse. Is that true? Okay. We will carry on with the honesty. Um, then there is also a loss of interest in important things. We prioritize our sins. We prioritize our addictions. We say to ourselves that, uh, let me just finish this and then I'll get to what I'm supposed to get to. And the thing is, unfortunately, because we don't take time to reflect and introspect, we always think that it's not an addiction, I have it under control, you know? It's not a problem, I've seen worse. It's always far removed from us and it's, it's, um, it's in the next person's space. We also exhibit dangerous behaviors. We take unnecessary risks in order to feed our addictions. You know, I was um, just watching a video um, that was posted on one of these residential groups about little boys who were jumping into, into a well. I don't know if anyone saw that one. Not, not really a well, I think it had rained, so there was like backed up water on the side of, um, it was like an embankment, like there's the, 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 the highway, and then down where the ditch is, that, was, that thing was full of water. So these boys, what they were doing was, they were crossing the streets and get, get, getting to the middle of the street, and then they would do a run up and jump in, right? But this was a busy street. This was a busy road, it was a highway. So there was traffic, a lot of traffic. One of them had his foot run over, but he still carried on with this game. And he went in. Then there was another boy who got out of the water, climbed up, tried to cross the street. He was halfway there, but he didn't make it. He got hit by a car. And as he landed, another car came and finished him off. Dangerous, risky behaviors in order to feed our passions. And what these passions do is, they don't get better, but they worsen situations. Um, as I was trying to, 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 to then give a visual to the face of these, these, these addictions. I thought, of, I thought of an illustration of a, a wound, right? What sin can be like, like a wound. It starts off like a little pimple on our hand and then we'll be like, oh, it's just a little pimple. I've only done it once, right? I've only done it once, it's a small pimple. No one can see it and it'll disappear. And then you continue to commit that sin because no one has seen it or no one has pulled you back. Or because you feel empowered that, oh, I was able to do it, I can keep doing it. And as you continue sinning, that wound continues to grow. It grows and it grows, but we keep, um, we keep sidelining it and saying it's not that important, right? And as it grows and grows, 
at some point now it becomes visible or we start to see more of it than we would like to. So what do we do? We cover it up. Probably take a bandage. We haven't medicated it, we just close it. I don't need to see it. When, I, when I'm not seeing it, I don't have to be responsible for it. And then it takes you now seeing that wound festering with worms, smelling and looking grotesque for you to say to yourself, what have I done? I need to address this. So that is the same like our sin. We have to get to a point of confessing our sin, of acknowledging that we actually have a problem. And then once you've looked at that wound, you say to yourself, what needs to be done in order for me to restore and, and bring it back to the way it should be? So that is the part where you now go on your knees and you say, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned. And then every day you buy the medications that are required to clean it and dress it. And that's our daily bread. Every day we're going back to Christ saying, Lord, I have a problem. Help me, help me, help me. And as you're doing that, you, you are healing and you're getting better. But now, with this kind of problem, we shouldn't say to ourselves, okay, I'm healed, I'm fine. I don't have to take this medication anymore. You can never live without Jesus. Because once you let him go, the devil will come back. And that sin will come back as well. There's this thing that happens. The devil understands us more than we understand ourselves. And he keeps us in cycles. So you overcome it this time. It will come back again in another way. But it's the same thing. And you keep going around in these cycles. So if you don't pay attention to it and you don't seek support and guidance from God, these cycles will keep coming back. Um, so where am I going with this as it resonates to virtuous living in an unvirtuous world? We talked about the things that people are struggling with. We talked about the things that people are suffering with. So now, um, as I have gone through all of this, I understand the struggle and the pain that it takes to heal that wound that I had, right? So at that point, when I see somebody else with that very same wound, I'm not going to judge. Neither do I condemn, condemn thee. Go in peace and sin no more. I will not judge that person. I will not put that person in a space where I think I'm better than them because I'm not. I've gone through it. That is the point where I see my fellow brother, my fellow sister, my mother, my father, and I say, I've been there. Let me help you through this. That is what we're asking for today virtuous living in an unvirtuous world, extending that hand of compassion, extending that love, extending that kindness and that gentleness because those things are no longer there in the world. When you do something kind to someone, people say, are you sure you're doing this for me? I'll give an example of my own experience. I have a habit of picking up people in the roads. When I see the elderly, I pick them up, um, I find out where they're going. If they're going in the same direction I'm going, I'll take them. Or if they're going somewhere close to where I'm going and I can divert my route slightly, I'll take them. Then they'll start fudging through their pockets looking for money and I'll say, no, I don't need your money, I'm just helping you. I thought you might need a hand. When I get to the destination of where I'm dropping them off, the amount of blessings that they pour on me are insurmountable. And they're like, a few people who do this, and I don't do it for myself, 
I don't do it for those blessings that they're giving to me, but I say to myself, that could be my mom. That could be my dad. That could be my grandmother. That could be me in a couple of years. And how would I want to be treated? Yes, I'm going to get old. <laughs> how would I want to be treated at that point in my life? Or how would I want my people to be treated? So people don't, they don't easily um, accept or acknowledge kindness because the world is no longer that way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you into a bit of a history lesson. Um, in, the 14, in the period 1400 to about 1623, in Europe mostly, there used to be this term called sanctuary, within the sanctuary. So there were particular places that were, um, that were demarcated, but most importantly the church. It was the, the, the Catholic church at the time. Uh, if someone who had committed murder, or who had robbed someone, or committed some kind of a crime, they could run to the doors of the church, bang on it, and say, sanctuary. So when they did that, they received amnesty within the church grounds. For as long as they were within the church, they were free. They were free, and they could stay there for a certain period of time. But beyond that, they had to live in exile for the rest of their life. But essentially, what the church symbolized was... Um, a, well, the, 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 the leaders believed that um, a consecrated church was a protected space and um, it would not be appropriate in the extreme to carry weapons into a church or to arrest someone or to exercise force within the church. Is that not true? That's how we see the church, right? So, um, another reason why the church was this, was this place of refuge was because the church didn't appreciate the kind of punishments that they gave to people who had committed these crimes. So the church then went on to say, okay, um, what we will do is to restore, is to support the restoration of the moral balance between the wrongdoer and God. Is that what no church is about, saints? Right? The church supports the restoration of moral balance between men and God. So during that time that that person was within the church, that is what the church was working on, restoring the moral balance between man and God. So if we go back to that first verse that says, so woman, where are your accusers? As the church, can we also stand there and be accusers? That needs a response. Can we stand there and be accusers? We are supposed to support the restoration of moral balance between the wrongdoer and God. So now the question that I ask, what is the church doing to be able to support that? Are we just running programs or are we about the people? Um, as I continued to read through the guided, the guided package, I also then remembered that there was a... There's this thing that the world does. They've got these, um, these groups, these support groups for people battling addictions, for people with problems. So the kind of support groups we have, we've got Food Addicts Anonymous, we've got Alcoholics Anonymous, we've got Sex Addicts Anonymous, we've got uh, Computer Gaming Anonymous, Addicts Anonymous. 
And what happens when these people meet? They meet in community halls, they meet in churches, they meet in different spaces. So what happens is when they meet, right, a person gets to that point, just attending a meeting does not start the recovery process for you to deal with your addiction. But what happens is you get to a meeting, you sit down and you say, hi, my name is Janet and I'm addicted to alcohol. Then the group immediately responds by saying, hi, Janet. And by so doing, there's acceptance, there's forgiveness, and there's an offer of support for you to heal from what you're struggling with. That's what happens in those addiction groups. And a person will go through a cycle where they, 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 they by virtue of being there, they want to, they want to heal. But through their healing process, they fall. And when they fall, they get up again. The people within the group help them get up again. And the beauty about these groups is that everyone within that group is also battling with their own struggle. So everybody knows and understands what each person's struggle is. And when they fall or when they are weaker, they support one another. Can you see how that somewhat resonates with what the church should be? We are all going through struggles and we should all be there to offer that olive branch, to offer that care and support to the next person. Not to point a finger and say, but you're pregnant and you're not married. Neither do I condemn thee. Go in peace and sin no more. So, what are we saying, church? At this point in time, do we offer sanctuary? to those in need who are seeking refuge? Do we offer a safe space for people with struggles to open up? Does our church support people trying to recover and heal from their vices? Are we living virtuously in an unvirtuous world as a church? Um, can we turn our Bibles to Psalms 32 verse 1 to 5? David, when he was going through his many different struggles, he wrote this psalm, and it reads, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up, as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David said this after he had sinned. And I asked myself, on so many occasions, I have struggled to go before God and talk to him because I feel burdened by the guilt of my sin. Sin makes us feel like we cannot draw closer to God, particularly when we do not confess it. You know, we pray such general prayers and we say, Lord, forgive me for the sins that I have committed knowingly and unknowingly. You know, it's so general. But have we actually acknowledged what it is we have done wrong? Because once you acknowledge it, then there is a road to recovery. There's a road to healing. And when you see someone else struggling with the same thing, that empathy you will feel 
comes from the experience you've gone through yourself. Um, I also saw from uh, Matthew 7, verse 1 to 5, it says, Judge not that ye not be judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with, this, and with, and with um, what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? As we know it, the speck. But considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in thy own eye. So, there we are again, um, asking ourselves, why it's so easy for us to look at the next person and think that they need they need to be forgiven of their sins and we ourselves don't. It goes back to that same issue that we're talking about. As a person, do we consider, do we introspect and do we truly reflect and say, where have I gone wrong and Lord help me? Before we start looking at the next person. Sermons are for each and every one of us, not for so and so. So now the question is, what's the road to recovery? I particularly love this verse. Um, Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, by the comfort whereas ourselves are comforted of God. Isn't that beautiful? That we go through struggles so we can support others through the same struggle by the strength that God has given us or by the comfort that God has given us. Ephesians 4, 32, like we read before, it says, Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Jesus Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Um, Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Um, as I continue to read the guide and sermon, it says, just imagine how soon, the, how soon work would be finished and Jesus would come to take us home if we modeled the love of Christ like this. I'm tired of being on this earth. I say to my kids all the time, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we have work to do. Ellen White says, the life of Christ has shown what humility can do by being partakers of the divine nature. All that Christ received from God, we too may have. Then ask and receive, and with the preserving faith of Jacob, and with the unyielding persistence of Elijah, claim for yourself all the good God has promised. This should be our daily prayer. When God has offered us so much, why do we settle for less? And then thankfully, um, even after the curse of sin fell upon the world, Jesus still cared about the dust, because we are all dust, right? He returned to the earth to continue his work among the dust of humanity. When he used dust to restore the blind sight, um, to restore the blind man's sight, it is the dust that's in John, and it is the same dust uh, and brokenness of life that he often uses today 
to restore our spiritual sight. He is good at mixing water with dust to make clay and is by and in by and is by being moldable clay it is by being moldable clay in the hands of the master master potter that we become all that he created us to be so the question is have you surrendered your dust to jesus have you surrendered your failures your sins and your wounded broken parts to jesus if we only surrender to him all to him we can work miracles in closing, I just want to share with you two quotes. One of them is, um, I love when people that have just gone through a very difficult situation walk out of flames carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by fire. And then, not all wounds are visible. Walk gently in the life of others. I pray, um, dear saints, that God helps us to be virtuous in this very unvirtuous world.
So what does it mean to be compatible? What does that word even mean? Yeah, well, compatibility is all about the way that we fit. Right. And sometimes we are not compatible at all. And we can recognize that right away. Sometimes one of us is compatible with the other person. And while the other person is not compatible at all, I call that one way compatibility. Oh, yeah. wait, hold on a second. <laughs> one way compatibility. Yeah. So one way compatibility. What I show my clients to illustrate this really easily. And I brought a graphic for you to see this today. It's kind of like the circle in the square. Right. OK. Imagine that you're the square and I'm the circle. OK. I fit into you. And yep. so you're able to touch all of my points. You complete me. It feels good. You are able to do all that I need to fulfill me. Because the circle fits inside the square. Right. But the square has edges that are never touched. And so they have unmet needs. And so they sit in a relationship and they go, you know what? For some reason, this just doesn't feel fully satisfying to me. While the other person is going, what is wrong? I'm so happy. I give you everything. Doesn't right. this feel wonderful to you? Right. And then we try to shrink the square to jam Absolutely. it in the circle, right? Absolutely. That's where we get in trouble. There How you do you go. know if you are truly compatible yeah. with your partner? Well, you know, it is really about how well we fit. And that doesn't mean that we are the same, uh -huh. but it means that our rhythm flows in a way that fulfills my needs and your needs are being fulfilled as well. It's a very reciprocal thing. And some couples have to work very hard at mm -hmm. being compatible and finding that fit. And for other people, it flows more naturally. Why do people constantly go after people that they're not compatible with? Oh my goodness, because it fills a need for us. See, there are different types of things, and I tell people all the time, in your adult relationships, you're doing one of two things. Either I'm healing that dysfunctional trauma that I brought into this relationship, you're healing me, you're growing me, you're stretching me, you're yep. causing me to confront those things so that I create new, healthier patterns, or you are a wound mate for me and you allow me to be triggered over and over so that we continue in our dysfunctional patterns that we're comfortable with. Oh my God, did you just say wound mate? Yes, a wound mate. Is that mm -hmm. what you're doing if you keep picking the wrong person? Like over the and over. So, so we hear it all the time mm -hmm. on this show. I, I bet you hear this like a broken record, too. Mm -hmm. Why do I keep picking the wrong person? Uh huh. And it's I because say, you're a wound mate? That's right. And it's where did you learn that? Who is that person representing for you in your life? It could be a parent. It could be a grandparent. It could be an old flame. It is that recreation of the same trauma so that I can show up differently. And over is and it over. that... It feels familiar, and yes. that's why you keep doing it, even Absolutely. though you don't want to? Absolutely, because see, at least I know this demon, right? I know how to confront it, I know how to deal with it, but the anxiety of doing something different, the fear of the unknown, even though I may want to get there, the fear of what it's gonna take and whether I actually can show up in it in the way I need to, oftentimes we're not willing to break through that cycle. Do opposites attract? How does that whole saying fit into wound mate? Yeah, well, it's not always about what's opposite. It's about what it is that I need. And one of the things that I love to tell people is what we do, unfortunately, is we walk out and we wear masks all mm. day, every day. Mm -hmm. And so I like to put it in terms of color, right? Okay. So say I, on the inside, who I am at my core is really a soft, sensitive, vulnerable person who's highly intimate, who needs that cuddling, who needs that affection. I'm seeing lilac. Oh, okay. Well, That's let's the go color with lilac. I'm seeing. Here 
we go. Yes. But I'm afraid to be taken advantage of. Okay. I've been taught either through conditioning or through my own experiences that the world is a scary place, that people will take advantage of you if you let them. And so you can't show the world that. So every day I put on a mask. What color do we going to? Red. Okay. So every day I put on this red mask, right? And this version of me is strong. It's hard. It's independent. It doesn't need anybody. It's standoffish Mm. because I'm protecting myself. So if I walk out every day wearing a red mask, who am I going to attract? Oh, people that are attracted to red. So I'm going to be in relationship with people who are attracted to red. But meanwhile, my needs are going to be unmet because I'm really lilac. And so I'm going to sit in this relationship unhappy and miserable and unfulfilled because the individuals that I should be with who would be attracted to lilac will pass me by every day. Holy cow. I I mean, I have to pick my jaw (laughs) off off the floor because I've never heard anyone describe it like that. Yeah. And so the hard part is if you really want to find the person that you're compatible with, you have to be brave enough to show up. So not only can you attract them, but you can choose them because we're constantly choosing the people that we bring into our life. Mm. Everything is a series of choices. But if what you see out there does not resonate, you're going to choose from the candidates that are in front of you. So when it comes to somebody that's a fit, mm-hmm. compatibility, you yeah. say that there are signs yes. to look for. What are yes. they? Okay, so they are big ones. And what it's really about is intimacy. And I tell couples, it's a really easy acronym. Some relationships rise, some relationships fall. You want one that rises. Now, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. When you say the word intimacy, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Intimacy means in to me see into my deepest, most vulnerable parts. How well do you know me? How well am I showing up in those spaces? And when I show you who I am at my core, do we really line up? So you said relationships rise or they fall, and there are five kinds of intimacy. So what are they? Okay, so this is an acronym. This is how you remember this. So the R stands for recreational intimacy, doing things together. So if I'm a type A person, I love skydiving, I love hiking, I'm kayaking. Do you love those things too? Do we line up? It's important because if you're a person who says, well, I hate all that, I'd rather spend my nights watching TV cuddled up. Mm-hmm. Well, then we don't necessarily have a high level of recreational compatibility. Got it. So that's important. Okay. The I is intellectual intimacy. Do we feed each other? Can we have conversations if I love that intense stimulation? Can we go from politics to sports to world events to geography? And can you meet me there and do you enjoy it? Or do we say, why are you so intense all the time? Why do we have to talk? Can we just kind of sit and be? Those things are important. The S is spiritual intimacy. And this is different than religion. We don't have to have the same religion. But do we see our concept of the world, of creator, of how we exist as as global citizens? Do we see ourselves the same? Mm. So spiritually, are we connected? Do we grow and nurture each other and feed each other in that space? Or do we make each other feel small or shrink or question our own spiritual growth? Hmm. So that's important. Okay. The E is emotional intimacy. Are we warm and fuzzy? Do I really feel like you get me? Do I feel safe and vulnerable? I'm or, or am I more like kind of a cactus? Listen, I don't need all that touchy, feely, emotional stuff. Be tough, be strong. And then that last S, it's last, but it's definitely not least, sexual intimacy. 
Do we like the same things? Do we light each other's fire? Are we into the same kinds of exploration? Or are we both conservative? Mm. Are we talking about it in terms of how much sex we want? How often do we show up and feed each other in that passion place? Some relationships rise, some fall. You want one that rises. And the secret to a relationship that rises mm -hmm. lies in those five forms That's of right. intimacy. Do you have to have all of them? No. Okay. But it's important that you have the ones that fit. It has to be about you. How well do we line up? If I don't need those things and you don't need those things, then we're great. But if I need them and you can't meet that need, now we have an issue. And do we figure out how to do that with each other or do we now have to go out and bring other folks into our relationship, sometimes in platonic ways, sometimes in consensually non-monogamous ways? How do we get those needs met? Got it. Well, I know that everybody's now wondering, holy cow, how do I know if I am compatible? Mm -hmm. Well, we have created a quiz to tell you whether or not you're compatible with your partner. Let me give you the questions real quick because you can take it right here at home. Do you miss your partner when you're apart for a long time? Why is this important? Because that's emotional intimacy. I'm connected to you. We're in alignment. We're in sync. And so when I don't have your presence near me, then everything about how my world operates is out of sync. Ooh, that's a good one. Do you trust your partner? Mm-hmm. Now, I almost just asked you, there's a big difference between missing your partner mm -hmm. and then wondering what they're doing oh, when they're not around. Right, huge difference. And it's not only do I trust you in how you're behaving out of my presence, but do I trust you with me? Do I trust you with oh. who I am? Do I trust you with my secrets? Have I told you everything that there is to know about me? And if not, then why not? So why do we stay with somebody mm -hmm. that we don't trust? Because again, it allows us to perpetuate those dysfunctional cycles. If I stay with you and I don't trust you, what then do I continue to do? I'm allowed to hide. I'm allowed to feel unsafe. I'm allowed to stay disconnected. It allows us not to go through the process of having to show up in our own lives. Wow. And question number three, do you have compatible lifestyles? What does that mean? Can you give me an example? Yeah, so if I'm a person who says, I love to get up early in the morning, I like to get my day done, I'm very ambitious, I'm very driven and goal-oriented, you probably don't necessarily want somebody who matches you in that place. Because Kill then, each other, yes, exactly, exactly. But by the same token, you don't want someone who's the complete opposite of that either, because then they'll just simply drag you down or you'll find yourself disliking them and trying to change who they are. Uh, question four, can you talk to your partner about anything? Yeah, if you don't have that openness, if you don't have that transparency, then that says that either they don't create a space for you to feel okay, or you don't create that space for them. So there are places and spaces in our relationship that we can't go, and usually that's where the toxins are that will kill your relationship. And question five, do you laugh together? Oh yes, because laughter is the thing that heals you. And if we can't laugh, if we have to take everything seriously in our relationship, then we are not compatible.
Et quel est ici Je veux dire, il n'est pas encore là. Puis je suis un nouveau fort espace, je veux savoir que je veux vexer, je veux le faire, à poser une formation sur le bâtiment. Oui, je suis encore là, je veux dire, je veux dire, 